Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac, and you're probably thinking, God, the last few episodes were just such a blast, but I'm glad it's over. I mean, it's kind of funny because I was thinking how it would be easier to read a Fran Hernandez on Wikipedia than listen to you be a windbag on the subject with mediocre at best pronunciation. You know, I will take mediocre at best. Yeah, I'd say so. You know what? When you say it like that, I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, I, I was just kidding, buddy. I love learning history that like six other people outside of a few hundred thousand campesinos on Earth know. It's kind of like being part of a secret club. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, well, then today's going to be great because we're going to be uh, taking a transition into some new content. But I feel like there's still so much to learn about the Green Revolution. Okay, fine. You twisted my arm because there actually is a lot. God damn it, Matt. How many times? How many times? We were almost free of the gravitational pull of the black hole that is the Green Revolution. We almost got out. So do you guys want to learn about the, the radical lesbian icon you never knew who fought the Nazis and the Green Revolution or not? Okay, when you say fighting, do you mean actual like combat? Oh, yeah. She was a pilot in World War II, uh, defected and did some crazy shit. Okay, hell yeah, I'm in. All right, so who are we talking about? Erna Bennett. Her name is basically unknown outside of a very, very, very small circle of nerds. <laughs> okay, if that's how we're going to start the episode, you said that, not me. I don't even want to know how many small circles of nerds you're in, Andy. Yeah, the nerds. He's so, in a big circle of small <laughs> circles of nerds. Nerd circles. It's like Nerf Herder. Shout out to Google Circles. <laughs> I was going with like Nerf Herder, but with nerds, like nerd circles. You guys remember Nerf Herder? Matt, you don't know who Nerf Herder is. Elliot, you know, do you remember Nerf Herder? Unfortunately, yes. All right, 5,000 Ways to Die. I, I really Classic. thought that would be useless information to leave my brain, but somehow it hasn't. It's this still is, there. I, I think this is why I can't learn new things. <laughs> you have to get rid of it. Drink harder. All right. So I'm she, on it. <laughs> so she she's very much like our friend Ephraim, someone who if you took like different chapters of her life, each of them would be like really worthy of like a, a badass babes of history kind of book. That wasn't very Pride Month of you, Andy. I know. I know. I was going for the alliteration thing. It doesn't matter anyway. Like technically speaking. Is badass babes bad? Is that bad? I think it is. Matt, as the resident Zoomer. I don't like it when you put resident Zoomer. That's what we keep you for. I don't know. I feel like calling people babes is... I call, like, everyone babe. <laughs> I've called Elliot babe at least a couple times. How come you never called me babe, Andy? Fine, I'll start calling you babe. No. That's okay. <laughs> That's <fine>. Wow. <laughs> you haven't earned it. I'm gonna leave now. You guys, you got this, right? Yeah, yeah. we got this, Matt. All right, so this is a uh, welcome back to the new Paul Pearls Almanac. It's me and Elliot. And, um, shit, do you have the script? I don't know what the fuck we're talking about All today. Right, Andy, can you come back? Okay, fine. So, happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. Actually, technically, it's like pre-Pride. We're, we're 24 hours away when this episode comes out. So, for our pre-Pride Month, cancel your local cis white dude, myself. You're welcome. I sacrifice myself for you. Elliot, uh, oh, Jesus Matt. Christ. When is there a uh, straight pride month? Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, okay, so. I'm just going to keep drinking. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let, let's talk about Erna. If you Google her name, a handful of obituaries will pop up. You might pull up a couple articles on Google Scholar from the 60s and 70s, and you might find her Wikipedia page, which is like, I think I counted nine sentences. So there's not a whole lot out there. 
to find meaningful data on her life, there's a few books on the history of the FAO, which of course I read, which was very, very dry. And there's a couple sections dedicated to her speeches. And also, there's a four-ish hour audio interview that's held by the National Library of Australia. Jesus, what a treasure trove. Right? Who knew? So for $19, I was able to get a hold of this interview for you. And um, not only did I listen to it, extrapolate some information, cross-reference it with all these things that we've read, we also posted the recording up on our YouTube. And I think our intro actually has a clip from her. So if you want to go check that out, go check the show notes. Just don't tell the Australian government because I don't think I'm legally allowed to share what I've paid for. So everyone be cool. Elliot, what are you doing on the phone? Nothing. Were you really going to rat me out to the Australian government? No. Well, I, I, was, I wanted to see you fight a kangaroo. So... You know what? Forget I said anything. No, no, I'm I'm with you. I would also like to see Andy go through copyright trial by combat with a kangaroo, which I'm kangaroo bat. I don't know if that's how they still do it in Australia, but I'm pretty sure that they read. I, I read that that's how they do it in Australia. So I'm pretty sure that's how they do it. At some point they did. Yeah. Let's talk about our girl, Erna. So Erna Bennett was born in Derry in 1925 and grew up in Belfast, moving there as at the age of four. She was also the eldest of four. Despite describing her childhood as being good, she described Belfast as, in quote, and this is just a wonderful quote, rather awful. I've thought very often since that bombing campaigns by the Germans and by the IRA have had an enormously improving effect on the city. All those dreadful buildings that I thought could never be removed have been removed, and there is every possibility that it could become a very, very beautiful city. Jesus Christ, Erna. Okay, so Erna's a cool goth chick. Check. She's checking checking boxes already. Yeah, she checks a few. So the reason I'm bringing this up, because uh, this is basically her personality. Like, doesn't care what you think, going to tell you how she feels about something. For example, apparently a priest showed up to her house for her baptism when she was a teen. And instead of just being like, ah, my parents are making me do this, she basically argued with him about creationism until he came up with an excuse to come back later. And they never heard from him again. Oh, that's amazing. It's pretty sweet. A lot of this attitude stemmed from her father, who was a policeman and a socialist who told her all good ideas stood up to criticism. So giving criticism was good. Wait, so a cop told her this? An Irish cop? Yeah. So growing up with a cop socialist dad, I'm sure like struck some interesting. I don't even know what the word is for that. Um but it, it did give her a very nuanced understanding of these things. And this became more and more uh, apparent as she got older. So her father was very involved with like the socialist movement across the globe. She was intimately exposed to things like the Spanish Civil War. Her father, in fact, kept a map of Spain with the little flags to track where the International Brigade stood against fascism. And she watched her father become enraged at the world's willingness to just let the fascists win. This was a really pivotal moment in her childhood. Erna later enlisted in the British Army at the start of World War II, lying about her age to get in when she was a year too young. Yeah, so did they let women enlist? Was that a thing? Did they let women enlist only if they were wearing trousers? Yeah. Oh, so she just had to wear pants, and that's how she got in? (laughs) They fixed gender equality with pants. Yeah, that's what I was told. Heard it here first, everyone. I mean, it sounds so easy. I don't know why people are just arguing about it now. Like we have pants. Like it's the, we can make more pants. It's so it's so it's dumb. Like why? Uh, just all right. Okay. 
Pants is the answer. Pants. You heard it here first. So uh, Pants is the answer might be a good bumper sticker for this pants, episode. Uh, you're going real early for the bumper sticker, man. We got like a whole half hour to go. All right. <laughs> so like, don't get your pants on a bunch on this this first bumper sticker idea. See, mm-hmm. he just he just see what I did it. there. He just made pants bad again. Oh my god! Fine, no pants. So when she was enlisted, she was shoved into the kitchens because she was a woman, and basically she spent her time ditching out soup to recruits at a training barracks. She obviously, given her personality, didn't take this kind of work well. Knew she was smarter and should be doing more, applied for transfers, even lying about her qualifications, like claiming she could fly a plane. Okay, so imagine you're the guy, like, looking at her application. Some generic girl just says she can fly a plane. Like, where would she have learned, you know? Is is that something that, like, come comes up for these army desk sergeants? I mean, if she's smart enough to figure out how to put on a pair of pants, she could probably fly a plane. <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, God gives his toughest gullibility to his strongest HR representatives, Matt. Come on. <laughs> Does HR stand for, huh, really? In her own words, afterwards, she said that she could fly. It was just, and I quote, theoretical. Oh, well, in that case, I too can fly a plane. Welcome and to the Paul Pearl Almanac. I've been high enough. <laughs> <laughs> a podcast hosted by three highly experienced pilots, in theory. So somehow... Despite, like, the reservations we all had to this, like, very obvious lie, this worked. I guess during a war, they were real desperate for experienced pilots. I wonder why. <laughs> Someone in HR won the Not My Job Award for that one. Before they knew it existed. Just putting in an A effort. I know exactly how that works from personal experience. From a guy, from a guy, from a guy that I know. <laughs> Somebody... <laughs> Basically, long story short, was somebody illegally enrolled into the army and a bunch of people were supposed to go to jail, especially the person that was enrolled in the army. But because he didn't and because it would have been a stain on their army's recruitment record in the office at the time, nothing happened of it. So I could totally Mm -hmm. see how this happened if they hired a girl with pants who said she could fly a plane and somebody was like, who let this pants plane flying person into the army and then they were like well that's gonna look bad so let's just let it let's just let's just let her fly planes you're really not letting go of that pants thing i just think it's funny (laughs) so uh she described the first day when all the students took their first flights all the students did one small flight around the city and landed you know you're just basic go up in the air go in a circle come back down and her flight was basically like a testing of the limits of the plane doing full like loop-de-loop kind of shit like her first time ever flying a plane when she got off the plane her instructor gave her this massive grin and uh, he extended his arm with the hope of her realizing that she obviously didn't belong in the air with them she didn't take that kindly she ignored him refusing to acknowledge the terror that he had put her through and basically went into the corner to go puke where no one could see her so she didn't know how to fly a plane <laughs> you're just catching on yes correct so turns out so it wasn't a simulation is not the same it was the pants <laughs> the pants lied the big lie but it's pants instead of an election <laughs> is this the sisterhood of the traveling pants this is where it began <laughs> no i just think i've had the wrong pants on when i try to fly planes that's why i can't do it <laughs> yeah so uh as we're starting to see she did a lot of really great things starting with being a fearless woman in the military to all the cool stuff that we're going to cover in a minute but before we get to that 
take this commercial. Howdy. Hello. Hang on. Let me let me try that again. <clears throat> Hello, skeleton army. That's aggressive. Yeah. I'm Angel Luna. I'm Nash Flynn. Welcome to Death and Friends. We're two comedians with a podcast. It's very original of us. Quiet, you. It is a history tour about everyone's final destination. As an academic. Nerd. I have a PhD. I almost sort of have a, kind of have a PhD. Anyway, I've researched a lot of death history. And also, I'm here. We'll talk about ways we die, ways we get buried, and ways we get remembered. And we even make some friends along the way. Huh. Is it a comedy podcast about death or a death history podcast that's funny? We have no idea. Mm, look, death can be tricky to talk about. And even though we're talking about it a lot. <laughs> Just please know, in fact, remember that you are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. Put me in your top eight, baby. Join us and listen to Death and Friends. Become a member of the Skeleton Army. Like right now. Do it. It's mandatory. Go on. Subscribe. Hit the button. Mm -hmm. Yep. Did you do it? Yes? Okay, good. Okay. Love you. Love you. Death and Friends Podcast. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Death? And we're back talking Erna Bennett, the less Italian Bennett. That's specific. Like... Compared to Tony Bennett. I, I swear, I don't know if you try to do it, but it always comes back to Italian people. I can't know? control the greatness of Italians, Elliot. All right, speaking of Italians, let's talk about the Nazis. We did it one time, Matt. Okay, not the argument I want to make right now. So, Erna, after completing her training, was put on ferry duties. And that was basically like repositioning equipment and staying out of the main action until they needed her due to her fluency in Greek. No idea where she learned Greek, to be honest. Well, you just need to know it in theory. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of tracks. I, I do think she knew it. I don't know where it came from. So she moved into a position with the British Intelligence Service in Greece, during which she was first exposed to Lenin. Despite already self-identifying as a socialist, she found his words better explained to her the lived experiences she had had than other leftist writers that she had read. Her work with the British intelligence was to identify which Greek activists were more sympathetic to British causes and work to elevate them within the Greek activists so that the Greek partisans would have interests more closely aligned with the British after the Nazis were pushed out of Greece. Okay, so she sounds like a fit. I like her a bit less now. All right, well, hold up. So she became aware of what was happening in Greece more intimately from her time there. It was because of this experience that she ended up ultimately defecting from the British Allied forces, and she joined the Greek partisans. I am back on board. Yeah. (laughs) She actually tells this really beautiful story about when she joins the Greek partisans, and she basically says, I understand why you wouldn't accept me. Like, if you want to leave me out in the cold, like, I get it. I understand all of the terrible things that I've done by working with the British. And they take her in anyway. But she's like, if they had left me out, I would have died because, like, I was a a woman out of place with no community in the middle of, like, a hellscape, right? This is during the fucking war. She's like, I would have been dead. And they took her in. She risked her life for that to, to align her work with her interests. Now, part of this was because she actually saw the British planning the future government in those cities in Greece with the Nazis to keep the Greek radicals out of power after the Nazis left. 
while this period was hugely influential for her understanding of politics and like the closeness of capitalism and fascism, it was also influential on her understanding of ecology and agriculture. She had spent her time in Greece in a rural environment, which was able to highlight the richness of traditional agriculture, and she saw how it was being destroyed in the name of progress by outside investors. Just classic case of industrialization of agriculture, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and defecting. I'm sure that went well, too. Yeah, about as well as you'd expect. She was charged with desertion in the face of the enemy and was court-martialed. She said that it was probably her father standing in the police force that resulted in her being sent back to England rather than sentenced to death. When she came back to England in 1947, she tried to get back to Greece without any luck and even tried to pursue journalism to create an excuse to return to Greece and cover the Greek Civil War unfolding. When all that failed, she decided to use that time to study at London University and Durham University for botany. Oh, yeah. She ended up graduating in 1953, and she struggled to find work in her field. Yeah, well, I imagine being court-martialed probably doesn't help your resume. Just court-martialed in theory. Exactly. So she didn't just struggle to find work, she became extremely isolated. Before the war being communist was like a thing that people could do afterwards like the cold war creeped in very quickly and being a communist basically meant all of her friends had deserted her no one would hire her between being court-martialed and being a communist she was basically like less than human she got deserted like the british army got deserted (laughs) in theory is that who we are now are we theory people in theory jesus christ (laughs) i love this in theory anyways After a few years of living paycheck to paycheck and waitressing, she's able to find a job at the National Library of Science and Technology because of her linguistic background. In theory. Well, I'm assuming at least after a few years in Greece, she could probably speak like a little bit of Greek. I mean, she went to Greece in theory. Oh, my God. So she took this position. And she very openly states in her interview that she was actually paid the lowest rate available because of her background, despite being wildly overqualified. And basically, they couldn't find anyone who could do the job at a remotely similar price. So a few years later, she received an opportunity to finally apply her knowledge at the Scottish plant breeding station, again, out well below the pay she should have qualified for. She worked with Jim Greger, who was the director at the time and had become well-known for his work on microevolution. It was at this time she started formulating her ideas around gene ecology, a branch of ecology which studies genetic variation of species and communities compared to their population distribution in a particular environment. All right. What does that mean? All right. I went to school for biology. so In theory. Are my student loans in theory, too? They could be if we... Uh believe it hard enough okay so basically what that means is we can study the relationship between genetic variation and environmental gradients within a species so for people who aren't as smart as you guys for people like me for instance that would be how environmental affects how evolution happens Yeah, I guess you could say that. So, of course, like evolution had been a theory for decades at this point. So this wasn't like in theory. Uh, So this wasn't a new concept uh, entirely, or as you might say, in theory. But Jim and Erner were the first people looking at it and putting data behind the adaptive processes that the plants went through. And the results showed that plants evolved much quicker than we had previously thought. Erner's concern was primarily around domesticated crops. Should be... uh, 
setting up like one of those little light bulbs as we get towards the green revolution, right? Specifically, the idea of how we can take traits from wild crops, integrate them into domesticated crops, and then not lose it because of the conditions we keep our food crops in. So like a plant will lose its wild resistance in a domestic setting because it doesn't need whatever traits it has for the reason it evolved it for. Okay, and this was all happening during the 1950s. Yeah, so to conceptualize this like within a bigger picture, American monocrop agriculture was basically taking over the world post-World War II. And petrochemical companies had already begun selling those green revolutions to Africa, Mexico, and Southeastern Asia. And Zolo, yo, shout out to Zolo, he was just getting into teaching while she was working with genetic issues of wild crops. Yeah, and she knew about the work he was doing collecting those maize specimens, which is kind of interesting, right? Now, we don't, probably not him specifically, or maybe she did actually. He was a pretty famous botanist. So she probably knew his name, even if she wasn't writing back and forth to the him. Although, given his like correspondence lists, he might have been writing to her, or she might have been writing to him and not hearing back. But basically, you know, she was thousands of miles away, beginning to develop a framework similar to what he ends up developing in his own time and his own you know space and at the same time she coined a specific term to describe this and it was called genetic conservation we should also mention here that the soviets had been working on this stuff for years and if you find this stuff interesting don't know the name nikolai valovov he's worth a quick google Vavilov? yeah the vavi boy he would hate that i'm sure he would <laughs> and actually, much of his and uh, since Gaia's work were translated into English by Gregor himself and were hugely influential to Bennett's work. In 1964 and 65, Bennett wrote two papers which put her on the radar of the FAO, specifically Historical Perspectives in Genecology in a record of the Scottish plant breeding station Pentelfield Roslin Midlothian and, yes, that's a place, sorry, I probably butchered it. Also, her second piece that was very important for her career trajectory was plant introduction and genetic conservation, genecological aspects of an urgent world problem in where it was located. Record of the Scottish plant breeding station, Pentland Field, Roslyn, Midlothian. It sounds like Game of Thrones. Sorry, Scotland. Sounds like some nice light reading yeah. that, you just, that you just rattled off. I'm going to print it off and put it on your bedside table. So he that literally, you... For anybody that's listening, because this is an audio source, he just read off the source, the actual source for some of this stuff. Well, for what he was referencing. And it looks like he just read a, a bibliography from MLA format. Yeah. Holy shit, I nailed it. MLA, throw it up. I can't believe I haven't forgotten that. I am not drunk enough. <laughs> we, This podcast is strictly MLA. We don't do that Chicago shit. We believe in freedom. MLA or die. That's right. We source it. Interesting. Such a... All right. I'm not going to fight you on that because I'm not... Y you're, you're Team Chicago? Get the no, fuck out. No, I, I don't. I'm just... I'm surprised. I don't think I've ever met someone with such a strong opinion of citation styles. MLA or death. And I'm just sitting here surprised I remembered citation styles. Everybody's impressed tonight. This is yeah. good. This is a good episode. This is a great episode. We're, we're getting into it. Speaking of episodes, uh, we should probably take a little break. Yeah, I'm about to have one. He's going to have a break. <laughs> I'm going to have an episode. Commercial, guys. 
Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. All right. So the big deal about, well, okay, I, I guess I should probably say welcome back. I'm just so excited about this content. I, I can tell. I got Elliot all fired up over there. He's got his bedside reading. I printed it out. It's like 56 pages. He's going to be reading about 1950s research in Scotland. It's going to be great. I thought you just gave me extra large dry papers, man. Yeah. No. I didn't even know there's words on this. Yeah, well, you're, you're about to read all of them or smoke all of them. Do you do you learn if you read if you eat the words? Like, do, do you? I'm digest? just going to go ahead and say, yep, I've smoked most of the pages in the Bible, and I'm I know everything that's in there. Nice. It's really good joint paper. I don't know how that what the fuck they make it out of, but they need it's to make super paper thin, out of it. That's yeah, why. it's awesome. It's great. Yeah, every hotel has a Bible in it. If you don't have papers, you can always get the blank pages in the back and make a pretty decent J. Just saying. Interesting. Pro tip. Might have to try that out. All right. So let's talk about this research. All right. What was so important about it wasn't just that they like articulated these concerns, which, as we kind of pointed out, there were other people like interested in this area, but they also had this data behind it. Being as young as she was with a very like complicated history, the FAO knew she was going to be a force to be reckoned with moving into the future. And they wanted her on her side, even with that baggage. In theory. Yeah, so a few years later, Bennett joined the FAO, and she continued her work of collecting plant genetic resources. Her newfound position with the FAO gave her wide, wide access to basically pursue whatever plant she she was concerned with. And that gave her like a lot of freedom to, to protect plant diversity by coordinating national and international activities across the Mediterranean and even into Central Asia. Her time in Turkey in particular was important for her to understand of how quickly the impact of uniform, quote unquote, improved crops were at destroying local diversity. So what you're saying is the failures of the Green Revolution were being seen at the same time across Central America and Europe. You could say that. And the United States kept doing it at home and pushing it overseas. And still are. God damn, I love freedom. Isn't it great? In theory. The thing that's important is not only was it not working, but it was actually actively destroying local diversity as a whole. It was destroying the very resource that was being used to keep these same improved crops from destruction from disease and pests. Since it was these various land race varieties which provided the genetic code to make these monocrops more resistant to these issues. Yeah, how's that freedom for everyone? How's everybody's freedom doing? Tastes like bland corn. Yeah, that's about right. Mine tastes like Coca-Cola without the Coke in it. Or or the cane sugar. 
so-called freedom. Ah, the freedom to not choose. It's great. So it was this platform that allowed her to continue to develop her work further. And she even went on very quickly to become the keynote speaker at the FAO Technical Conference of 1967. Now, it was at this conference in particular that a couple of very meaningful things happened. The first is that the term genetic erosion was coined. She later called this conference a watershed moment for the defense of genetic diversity. In her words, end quote, the future challenge is therefore to manage agricultural ecosystems in a manner that will, one, avoid the buildup of substances that are either directly hazardous to human health or damaging to the structure and functioning of ecosystems, two, ensure the effective recycling of essential plant nutrients, and three, preserve wherever possible both species diversity and spatial heterogeneity in the agricultural landscape. This challenge is a time when it is frequently suggested that the best hope for increasing the world's food supplies lies in the future intensification of agriculture, particularly through the diffusion of modern agricultural practices to less intensively managed parts of the biosphere. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that's exactly what we're doing now, so we have nothing to worry about. Podcast over. That's it. After how many episodes? We finally. I think that's it. What is it? I don't even know what episode it is, but I think that we just ended it right now. I think we're at like 160, somewhere around there. All right. Good show, everyone. A lot, a lot less. It, it felt like more. It felt, it felt, it I mean, felt it, like... That's a lot. It felt yeah, like that, years. That, it was years, Matt. Although, <laughs> all right. So one of these days, we're going to all sit down and listen to every episode back to back to back until we hear every single one round the clock. Yeah, I think that's how I'm... When I'm ready for my gray hair to officially go gray, because I'm salt and pepper now. So when I'm ready to go full gray, we'll just do that. I'll do it in like a day. Mm-hmm. It's like Toyotathon, except the proles. It's like Proyotathon. Think about it. December to remember, Elliot. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to survive <laughs> that, Andy. Yeah, no one will, especially me, because you will kill me. I got my brain melted at Proyotathon. <laughs> Not for nothing. I, I wouldn't single you out, buddy. I'd, I'd kill us all. <laughs> oh, well, no, that makes me feel better. You're going to teach me how to fly a plane in theory? I'm going to teach you how to finish this fucking podcast episode in theory. <laughs> like, why, why don't we do that? Yeah, we should do that. So she also went on to say in this speech, in quote, erosion of our biological resources may gravely affect future generations, which will rightly blame ours for lack of responsibility and foresight. But at this very moment, we are equally deprived because many one might say most of these genetic resources are not available for general utilization by plant breeders, agronomists, foresters, horticulturalists all over the world. Absolutely spitting facts in 1967. Throwing shit down. Yeah, so that, I mean... She just pissed on her audience. It's yeah, pretty. pretty much. Told everybody they're, they're not stupid. Gonna keep shame. And they're not going to They're not doing it right. She didn't just like tell them they're stupid. She's just like, you're not doing it right. Yes. And like, I think what's interesting is that she's like acknowledging too that they should be doing better for, or there should have been more resources available for them. And they are actively not doing enough for the present time as well as the future. It's not just like our grandchildren need this. It's like, no, we're not taking care of each other right now. We're screwing everything up, like on, on multiple levels here. Okay. So it's always been like this. Then I feel better. Podcast over. <laughs> there's no more no more it, need to feel doomsday because it's not doomsday it's just always been like that you're just mad that the podcast isn't over elliot you gotta suck it up and I'm be trying happy. to end it smile and nod tonight. elliot 
Are we talking about the podcast or should I like check in? Are we going to finish it? I don't know. Can you answer me that question? Are we going to finish You know the answer episode? to that question. You know the answer. Think about it. I do know the answer. I'm the master of my universe. You are the master of your universe. Matt, are you the master of your universe? Hardly. Not even close. That's fair. I burned a Pop-Tart today. <laughs> that sucks. It shouldn't even be possible. I don't know how it's possible. No, I'm just joking. I didn't. Right. I was just trying to make an example of how I'm not the master of my universe. So you lied on the podcast. I would never burn a pop. I would. I would never burn a pop. I would never burn a pop tart. I don't need. <laughs> you, I don't need pop tarts. In theory. No, like fact. I don't eat pop tarts. I mean, good for you. Fuck that shit. So, anyways, we don't eat pop tarts. Fuck that shit. That's the bumper sticker. Done. We're getting sued so fast. It's gonna be great. <laughs> um. So, anyways. ask me about my pop tarts lawsuit. <laughs> Now that's yes. a bumper sticker. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, that's that's beautiful. So this whole this uh, this this uh, conference was like this really big watershed moment for plant diversity, and the reason why it's really important to put this within like a context. So a few years prior to her joining the FAO, they had a similar conference focused on plant introduction. This plant introduction, unsurprisingly, wasn't like about invasive species or anything like that it was framed along the lines of the green revolution that had been taking place in latin america africa and asia and was actually just focused on how to integrate these conventional european style crops into these new climates my god imagine doing all this research and being so incredibly wrong yeah their goal is to understand how to maximize production of wheat barley maize and timber production based on primarily northern hemisphere species the focus was on how to get them to succeed while also not really considering the aspects of gene ecology, which folks like Erna and her other colleagues were identifying as critical parts of how plants would interact with novel landscapes and ecosystems. Okay, and the Soviets had been doing some of this work, and they knew about it, and they still didn't really care about the fact that scientists and other you know, specialists were suggesting that what they were trying to do wouldn't work. First off, those were communist plants. They don't count. But, like, honestly, the Soviet plant research labs did some really incredible, underappreciated work. There is a lot of really amazing stories that are really worth highlighting. And at some point, Elliot, we will get to them. I know you thought we were almost done with this stuff, but we the are list. just... Are you going to add that list. to the list right now? I'm yeah. trying to end the podcast tonight. You're just going to make the list longer? You're going to do that? Oh, I'm <laughs> going to make the list so long in this episode, you don't even know. This this it's, whole show is just every, a battle between the current episode and the list. Yes. And every time... It's like Pinocchio. I thought you were going to say yin and yang because he's white and I'm... Wait, I'm white and he's... Wait, which way is it? <laughs> drink. Go drink. You'll be fine. All right, I think that's that's enough beers. No, it's not. That's the problem. Come oh, on, God. step it up. Um, but yeah, so like this podcast is ultimately Pinocchio, and the list is Pinocchio's nose. So every time Elliot says it's over and the list exists, it gets longer. Schrodinger's list. Do you like my metaphor, Matt? It's Schrodinger's list, but not because it's Pinocchio's nose. Prolochio's nose? What no. the Erna no. Bennett. No. What? Okay. Erna Bennett didn't do all this work for you to be talking about <laughs> Prolochio's nose, Andy. Get the fuck out of here. She might have. All right. So, uh, 
in her interview, Erna, like the one she did with the Australian whatever in the 90s, she suggests that the sudden concern with her work was actually because the proponents of the Green Revolution were quickly seeing how this idea of like just transplanting crops was creating massive genetic erosion and that these projects were not showing the results that they had expected. So instead of reassessing whether or not what they were doing was viable, it was rather focused on making the broken system work. Yeah, and there's like a lot we can unpack about that. The biggest and most important reason for the push for the Green Revolution was that it took people out of the countryside and created a bigger labor force in urban centers. Coincidentally, as the Industrial Revolution was running out of labor to feed the machine, quite literally speaking. And this is what we also saw play out in Mexico, right? And Ephraim pointed that out really early on. Basically, the idea is that industry needed more labor, but also they wanted an oversized labor force, which helps keep those labor costs low. Okay, so it sounds like it was never about feeding people. Yeah, even back in the 50s, there was more than enough food to feed the population at the time, and it was really just a distribution problem. You mean it was a profitability problem? Exactly. And even saying distribution isn't even really accurate. It was distributed where it needed to go, but it was always behind a price, right? So like rich people in countries that were starving still had plenty of food, right? And that's something even Erna pointed out in the 1960s as she was advocating for changes in what food growth looked like. And what sort of pushback was she like receiving from this? We see a couple different angles that she gets pushed back on this. And uh, I'm not sure... I don't think we're going to get to that today, but we'll talk about it in the, the next episode. But to get back to her work and her criticism of the reductive processes of the Green Revolution, she points out why their practices failed then and continue to fail today. This is her quote again, one could breed a crop resistant to this or that disease. And then within a year or two of the crop's commercial use, you could find that the resistance would get broken and you'd have to start again. Do we contend ourselves with this major gene breeding, which dodges for a few generations, for a few years, the impact of a disease, but then presents us with a problem with breeding further resistance when that breaks down? Or should we perhaps look for something different, which might be called adaptive resistance, in which you never have complete resistance because it's based on an evolutionary co-adaptation between parasite and host, which allows the host to continue growing reasonably well and allows the pathogen to establish itself without causing devastation. In other words, to recreate the conditions that apply in traditional farming and primitive farming, where you never see a crop wiped out, but you never see a crop without some disease. I'm, I'm going to break it down for myself because it's a lot of, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to digest. So allowing evolutionary practices drive what our food system looks like is what she just said. Yeah. I feel like I've heard that before. Is that what we're doing? It's, it's all right, but we all, we all hear little voices in our heads sometimes. So you heard it too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're right. And um, like... That means I'm not crazy. You are, but unrelated. All right. I so, need you to say that to the judge, please. Okay. Can we just get you? I wear, I'll wear a tie. We'll yes. go to the court. We'll do that. I'll be your token white guy. I'm happy to no, be your I token need, white guy. I need guy. Matt to say it. You're not credible. Oh, sorry. Okay. You're right. Sure. Thank you. Wait, you don't want to plead in Senate? No, no I'm not going to question it. All right. So no, to get back to- The food's not good. I thought about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to get back to Erna, though. So like her whole thing is like, how do we create- a diverse genetic pool that is resilient 
or resistant, even if it's not 100% resistant, mostly resistant. But because of this diverse genetic pool, we continue, it evolves, co-evolves with the things that are trying to kill it, right? And that, that's what like the history of evolution is. And it's mostly worked, like most things survive, right? And we can obviously tinker with it a little bit. But like, the whole point is like that we can, we can work to make the system work. And while she was talking about food, I also think it's worth thinking about like, how this plays into like, invasive species, right? So like, we can be really good species or do good work by working to give native crops, native plants an opportunity to compete by reducing that pressure right and that's basically what she's advocating is like how do you allow it to grow reasonably well and allow for this evolutionary co-adaptation and like i think in terms of like ecosystem scale invasive species are basically a parasite right mm -hmm. they're coming in and destroying everything that's what a parasite does it tries to kill something for its own benefit um not even for its own benefit because it hasn't co-evolved together so it doesn't have those natural checks and balances so we can we can be that thing that helps reduce that pressure and reduce that need, you know, help, help that evolutionary process happen more effectively, right? So like, there's, there's a lot that we can, we can unpack from the work she's been, she did 50, 60 years ago. It, we're we're going to cover a lot. And so far, she's been pretty awesome. You're probably, Elliot, unfortunately, gonna like her a little bit less in the next episode. I'm sure she's fine. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, I reserve the right to be the judge of that, so. Yes, you, you have a judge and you will be the judge. That's right, jury and executioner. Can I? Do, can you still do that? If Trump's president, maybe not you, but like me. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm just gonna. <laughs> I think you just have to wear a black hood and it makes it legit, right? Yeah. Yep. Let's go with that. Sick. So it's <laughs> fucking so, sweet, dude. Let's <laughs> fucking do it. Yeah, so we're going to split this episode here, so take a break, and if you just cannot wait to hear the rest of this, jump on our Substack, go check out the article, which highlights all the things we've discussed here, plus a few nuggets that didn't make it into the script. Also, uh, early access to the next episode on Patreon, right? Also that, Matt. Throw it up. Get on there. Get on there. Someone plug Looking it. Looking out for the Patreon here. Right. So until next time, this is Andy, Elliot, Matt. The Poor Pearls Almanac, we're out here doing Pride Month early, so suck on that, everyone. This is the worst Pride Month podcast I've ever heard. Yeah, it's really bad. I I wouldn't wow. listen to it. <laughs> I have no pride. Wow. I have no pride. <laughs> Different kind of pride, Elliot. Oh. Different kind of pride. Oh. Okay. Okay. End, I guess. <laughs> I guess yeah. we're done here. <laughs> that is so fun. I love oh. that. That's a good episode. Oh. It's an absolute oh. disaster. I'm hammered. <laughs> I'm going to do all of them drunk now. It's officially the beginning of the end. This is what I said. Uh